Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the death of the last leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, who is loved in the West but loathed in his own country, but whose place in history is secured by his work with President Reagan to end the Cold War, and he's opening the door to freedom of speech in the Soviet Union, which is now being rolled back by Russia's President Putin. Joining us is a Russian journalist who has interviewed Gorbachev a number of times, Stanislav Kusha, a journalist and former Russian TV presenter currently based in New York City. He has previously worked as editor-in-chief of the Snob Multimedia Platform, chief political analyst and creative director for Commonsant FM All News Radio Network, anchor at Sovereshenno Sekretno TV channel, and editor-in-chief of the Russian edition of National Geographic Traveller. We'll discuss how Gorbachev's reforms backfired inasmuch as Glasnost, speaking freely, that was meant to stimulate perestroika, economic restructuring, unraveled a regime based on lies and controlled by repression. Then we'll examine the possibility that although Gorbachev is blamed for the collapse of the Soviet Union and the economic devastation and chaos that followed, Russians might eventually see him in a better light as Putin's ill-fated war in Ukraine grinds on and the darker forces of nationalism and repression turn back the clock. Joining us is Ilya Yablokov, a lecturer in journalism and digital media at the University of Sheffield in England, whose research interests include disinformation, conspiracy theories, international broadcasting and political communications, as well as journalistic practices of self-censorship in the post-socialist countries. He's the author of Fortress Russia, Conspiracy Theories in the Post-Soviet World, and co-author of Russia Today and Conspiracy Theories, People, Power, Politics on RT. Then finally we'll assess what kind of internal battle is going on within the Russian security services between those who support the nationalists and those who want to tone down the bellicose and genocidal rhetoric of the nationalist war hawks dominating state TV. Joining us is Michael Gorham, a professor of Russian studies at the University of Florida and author of two award-winning books on language, culture and politics, After Newspeak, Language, Culture and Politics in Russia from Gorbachev to Putin and Speaking in Soviet Tongues, Language, Culture and the Politics of Voice in Revolutionary Russia. He has recently published articles devoted to the political and rhetorical impact of trolls, hackers, blogging bureaucrats, tweeting presidents, dictators on Instagram, Alexei Navalny on YouTube, and the Putin administration's recent effort to enlist all legislative, technological, and rhetorical means possible to establish a sovereign internet independent of the World Wide Web. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. 
where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Stanislav Kusha, who is a journalist and former Russian TV presenter, currently based in New York City. He has previously worked as editor-in-chief of the Snob Multimedia Platform, chief political analyst and creative director for Commerçant FM All News Radio Network, anchor at Sovereshino Sekretno TV channel, and editor-in-chief of the Russian edition of the National Geographic Traveler. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stanislav Kusha. Hey, Jan. Great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Stanislav. And you, as a Russian journalist and TV presenter, you've interviewed Mikhail Gorbachev, who has just died at the age of 91. He's been sick for some time, apparently, with kidney troubles. Tell us about your encounters with the former and last Soviet leader. I mean, my first encounter was probably when I read in the papers that uh, uh, the Soviet Union had a new leader. And uh, when our history teacher uh, came in and said, well, you know, like uh, the king's dead, long live the king, you know. And uh, nobody even thought of perestroika back then. But already in late uh, 85, we used to have those political information lessons, so to call, uh, so-called, um, where a student was supposed to read newspapers and watch Soviet television during a week, and then next Monday um, deliver a sort of a lecture on the current political developments in the country. And so when my turn came, I remember I spoke a lot about uh, Gorbachev and his plans uh, to reform the country because he already announced those plans. Uh, and he used the word perestroika, reconstruction, and uskarenie, acceleration, and glasnost, openness. So uh, that's basically was my first um, not yet personal encounter with uh, Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev. And uh, my personal, I mean, we met personally a few years uh, after that, when I uh, became Russia's youngest uh, political commentator on national television, and I had my political show, and I invited him, and we spoke, and I asked him some tough questions, or questions which seemed tough to me, about the reforms and whether he regretted uh, the way the reforms had been conducted, and what he thought of uh, millions of Russians who uh, and, you know, not only Russians, but ex-Soviets who um, were cursing him uh, at the moment. And there were lots of people, you know, who blamed Gorbachev for all their misfortunes of the late 80s and the early 90s. And uh, after that interview, we'd meet, you know, every few years, again, for an interview at a reception um, and had both on-record and off-record conversations. So these interviews took place after he'd left office and after the coup attempt on him by uh, General Krichkov, the head of the KGB. Um, absolutely, of course. Uh, when the coup happened, uh, the coup of 1991, August 19, 1991, I was on my hitchhike trip across the United States and that's where I met the news about the coup in Russia. So um, that was before I became a journalist specializing in politics and covering politics. Uh, and uh, 
so uh, I did not know him obviously when he was uh, what it was like as a human being as a person when he was in the Kremlin but um, the one thing I can say for sure is uh, that he proved that there is life after the Kremlin something that very few dictators can even imagine uh, Putin included and uh, when I got to know him personally and had a chance even to drink beer with him once I realized he was probably not so much about politics but he was he was more than about politics uh, this man was uh, uh, I mean for him there was no value more precious than freedom as a basic condition for the development of human potential so he's always been more about um, Politics was only a part of what he was about. It was about humanity, humaneness, humanitarian values. And uh, like I already mentioned, asking him uh, some of uh, the unpleasant questions. Uh, and I remember some of my remarks he would laugh at. Other questions made him frown. And once uh, when I asked him how often he tried to rewind the tape of time in his head, uh, I saw tears in his eyes and I can tell you for sure that he thought a lot and suffered a lot um, psychologically and mentally about uh, how well both seeing the results of his reforms and the results were not only positive right uh, uh, military conflicts and deaths of people uh, in the former Soviet republics were also a result of his reforms and he, I guess, was really tough for him to carry that weight on his shoulders. Uh, but, um, however, already in late, well, probably in, um, in the, at the beginning of the new millennium, um, I remember we met uh, in 2003 for another show I had on Russian television. And then later, when I got on the Kremlin's blacklist, of political journalists and could no longer comment on politics on nationwide channels. I remember I invited him uh, uh, to join my show on a smaller radio station in Moscow, which much smaller audience. And he agreed immediately because uh, from the very beginning of uh, Putin's uh, Putin in the Kremlin, Gorbachev realized that Putin, what Putin was doing, he was trying to close the door that Gorbachev opened and uh, Gorbachev also spoke a lot about the dangers about that closing about the closing of that door because the dangers of closing that door could in his opinion lead to even worse consequences than opening the doors in the first place and uh, right now I mean we're all we're all witnesses to uh, how right he was saying right. those words. Well, he did form the independent newspaper Nova Gazeta, and that has been recently closed down by Putin since the war in Ukraine. Right, but, yes. But, and uh, I spoke with Dmitry Muratov, who was uh, the founder and the first uh, editor-in-chief of Nova Gazeta, and who, who was recently, you know, one of the Nobel Prize Peace, uh, Nobel Peace Prize uh, winners. And... Um, uh, he also spoke a lot about Gorbachev and especially about his anti-war 
uh, anti-war in Ukraine mm, mood and statements. Unfortunately, um, he was already very, very sick to uh, appear in public on television or elsewhere to uh, uh, to actually, you know, word this statements uh, physically. Sure. Uh, so Dmitry Muratov and his other, you know, people who who acted as his uh, press secretaries or spokespeople for Gorbachev, they had to do that for him. And again, I'm speaking with Stanislav Kusha, who is a journalist and former Russian TV presenter currently based in New York City. He has previously worked as editor-in-chief of the Snob Multimedia Platform, chief political analyst and creative director of Commonsant FM All News Radio Network, anchor at Sovrasheno Sekretno TV channel, and editor-in-chief of the Russian edition of the National Geographic Traveler. So Stanislav Kucha, when you interviewed uh, Mikhail Gorbachev about Perestroika and Glasnost, did and you said tears came into his eyes because these were necessary reforms, obviously, but they didn't necessarily work out the way they were intended. The idea was that Glasnost was supposed to stimulate Perestroika economic reconstruction, and Glasnost gave the ability, for example workers on the shop floor of a factory to turn to their bosses and say, look, this is a, there's a better way to build this locomotive or whatever they were doing. And you can make the comparison with the Communist Party of China, the People's Republic. They never, ever touch glasnost. They, they're a dictatorship with complete control over citizens with massive surveillance uh, and the most advanced high-tech surveillance in the world. So they haven't allowed Glasnost, but they've allowed unlimited perestroika, it would seem. So is that the irony here, that Glasnost essentially, instead of stimulating perestroika, it ended up unraveling the entire country because it meant that people were able to speak freely and therefore the emperor had no clothes. The whole place was a fiction. Well, you are definitely hitting the point here, Jan. But uh, and uh, the thing is, um, a, a lot of Gorbachev's opponents and critics, uh, especially um, especially Russian or Soviet imperialists, they uh, have been repeating this ever since uh, the first years of Perestroika and throughout the 90s and in the past 22 years, and especially actively in the past few years. They've been repeating that uh, um, uh, glassness, uh, openness, uh, democratic uh, reforms were to blame for the breakup of the Soviet Union and the failure of uh, uh, the economic reforms. Because, in the, and, and that's exactly the example that they would have come up with. China, like, look at China, you know, they have no freedoms whatsoever, and yet their economy boosted and Right now, uh, they're threatening uh, the dominance of the United States, the economic dominance of the United States. But um, Gorbachev, I don't think he ever for a second regretted that. I'm sure he thought a lot about that, but he never regretted that. And that I know both from him and from his close friends I've talked with as well, including uh, Dima Muratov, whom I mentioned earlier. Um, because again, for Gorbachev, uh, for Gorbachev, he he believed 
in human potential. He believed in Russians. He may have been naive, you know, believing in uh, people, but he never believed people were uh, just, uh, you know, a herd of sheep. He always believed in personality, and he always believed that the Soviet, the Russian people, deserved freedom. And uh, he probably underestimated uh, their ability to uh, use that freedom, to take advantage of it. Uh, but uh, I don't think he ever regretted. And the people, uh, you, I mean, you know that he has been idolized in the West. And millions in the former USSR, primarily in Russia, hated him. Uh, and they hated him, in my opinion, because they were afraid to admit it was they who could not take advantage of the opportunities that he gave, the doors that he opened, the freedom that came along with the reforms, and, uh, and uh, the responsibilities that usually come along with freedom. And uh, honestly... I don't know how many more years will pass before the majority of Russians will be able to understand what Gorbachev did for them and for the world. But uh, when that mom moment comes, it will definitely become one of the indicators that the Russian society is recovering. So, Stanislav Kusha, are you saying, in effect, that Gorbachev opened the door to freedom of expression through Glasnost, and that the problem is with the Russian people. You keep hearing this all the time in, in analysts of the Soviet Union and Russia. The suggestion is that somehow, genetically, somehow it's in the DNA of the Russian people that freedom is something that they can't handle or they don't want. Well, they you want know what? A I strong would, uh, leader, they want a firm hand, they want a czar. Is no, that God, what you're I think I think I think it's no. Uh, assuming assuming uh, a nation has something in their DNA is pretty close to assuming the nation is uh, um, inheritably inferior, right? Right. Uh, which sounds pretty like close to Nazism. Yeah, no, and that's bad, bad, uh, not the that's best expression. No. Yeah, that's definitely not uh, what I'm implying. It. Um, no, um, I'm just saying that. Uh, the, um, it's always a combination. I mean, uh, we can talk about history now and talk about a combination. Like, uh, was there something in the blood or in the DNA of the German people that made Hitler and Hitlerism a possibility? No, but a combination of uh, historical coincidences and uh, logical developments, right? Um, like the First uh, World War and the... Uh, hunger for revenge and the economic disasters of the early 20s in Germany. So um, the situation is pretty similar to what happened with Russia. Uh, but historically, again, unlike Germany and some other nations, for, for at least uh, six, if not 700 years, Russia was an authoritarian state uh, under tyrants, call them czars, dictators, whoever, uh, and the democratic traditions, which did exist in Russia before, uh, before Russia became an empire, um, they were forgotten. And then the 70 years of communism. So uh, this is really a very heavy heritage. And uh, I'm not sure that any nation in the world could overcome 
uh, a history of um, a certain attitude and uh, a certain mindset in just um, 10 years. So the 90s were definitely not enough. But I'm absolutely positive that uh, after, um, after the war in Ukraine ends, and I'm sure, I'm sure that Ukraine will win this war, uh, and after Ru Russia will definitely suffer and the transition will be um, very painful, but there will be a transition to a real democracy in Russia. And I'm pretty positive we all will witness that. Too bad Gorbachev did not have a chance. Um, but again, I'm um, having talked with him, I'm pretty positive that he was optimistic. He, I mean, sometimes it seems to me, seems to me that he was, he was, you know, somebody who came from, I mean, I know this can sound esoteric, et cetera, et cetera, but he is definitely like someone who came to us from a different planet and who saw um, far uh, beyond uh, the limits of uh, human sight. And uh, he was um, a man, he was a human of... Uh, a great 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 scale so it's really he he understood that history takes not months i mean sometimes historical events can take months or even days like uh what happened in august of 1991 in moscow but things like changing the mindset the paternalistic mindset of the russian people such things can take um, you know decades uh but he was pretty positive that in the end his cause was right and what he did was right and i'm i'm as for me i'm positive that if he um, if he didn't attempt to do what he did back then in 1985 of course uh, he could have become another russian dictator and he could have died last night in the kremlin as uh, president of the Soviet empire, or we all could have died before then uh, because of, because the third world war could have started. I mean, there are so many uh, sure. ifs and could haves uh, we can speculate on, but um, again, he opened the doors. He may have done this a bit early for the Russian people, but um, probably only, you know, in years to come, we all will, realize if it was early or if it was high time when he did that. Well, Stanislav Kusha, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Jan. And again, I've been speaking with Stanislav Kusha, who's a journalist and former Russian TV presenter, currently based in New York City. He has previously worked as editor-in-chief of the Snob Multimedia Platform, chief political analyst and creative director of Commerçant FM All News Radio Network, anchor at Sovishino Sekretno TV channel, and editor-in-chief of the Russian edition of the National Geographic Traveler. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the possibility that although Gorbachev is blamed for the collapse of the Soviet Union and the economic devastation and chaos that followed, Russians might eventually see him in a better light as Putin's ill-fated war in Ukraine grinds on and the darker forces of nationalism and repression turn back the clock. i mm -hmm.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from the UK is Ilya Yablokov, who is a lecturer in journalism and digital media at the University of Sheffield in the UK, whose research interests include disinformation, conspiracy theories, international broadcasting and political communication, as well as journalistic practices of self-censorship in the post-socialist countries. He is the author of Fortress Russia, Conspiracy Theories in the Post-Soviet World, and co-author of Russia Today and Conspiracy Theories, People, Power, Politics on RT. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ilya Yablokov. Hi, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Ilya. And um, before we get into the subject that I called you about, which is in essentially the kind of nationalist fervor on Russian TV, particularly following the assassination of Daria Dugina, what uh, do you make of the coverage coming out of uh, Russia now of the death of Mikhail Gorbachev? It is surprisingly neutral, I would say. Um, Gorbachev is certainly a very divisive person. Uh, he was a great politician. Uh, and at the end of the 1990s, the trend in Russian public sphere was to blame most of the troubles in economy, uh, in regions, for example, nationalist conflicts, on Gorbachev and Yeltsin. And then when Putin came to power and when in the mid-2000s the trend changed and he started building authoritarianism, Gorbachev was chosen as the scapegoat, the person who was to be blamed for everything. Well, uh, most importantly, the collapse of the USSR, but not just that. There were various conspiracy theories around uh, his role in the Soviet collapse. There were rumors and conspiracy theories that he was recruited by the CIA, uh, all those, you know, crazy things. But um, Gorbachev was also quite active in commenting on what was happening in Russia in the last 25 or even 30 years since his retirement as a president of the USSR. And very often Boris Yeltsin, who was the first Russian president, and then Vladimir Putin responded to him, uh, criticized him and accused him of destroying this, well, especially Vladimir Putin, uh, accused Gorbachev of destroying the great country, quote-unquote. So when today you open the Russian media, you see uh, a completely interesting and, and peculiar picture because you don't see a lot of the criticism that you would normally see in the previous years. Uh, Putin sort of uh, issued a very short statement about the great reformer who sensed that uh, the, the changes uh, had to happen and he was a reformer and that he was a great uh, leader of various charities. That was pretty much it from Putin. But other politicians who normally on the daily basis now or saying all those ridiculous things about the West, about America, and about the Russian opposition, uh, even they are pretty neutral. They don't say all those 
crazy things. Not to, well, I'm not saying that they will never say that. Probably they will carry on anti-Gorbachev um, uh, statements, you know, maybe next week, maybe two weeks from now. It's only television and radicals are kind of going crazy still about him, for example, uh, one of the central, like iconic propaganda uh, bullhorns on the Russian TV today said that uh, since we are Christians, there is a custom not to say bad things about the uh, about the person who has just died, which means probably they will be saying so many bad things after uh, mm. the person is buried. But um, I would say that the neutrality of these conversations, of these statements, is rather surprising. But it doesn't mean that it's going to stay like that forever. Well, it's worth noting, of course, that Gorbachev was one of the founders of, of Novaya Gazeta, which was the only independent newspaper left, along with Echo Moskvi, the only radio station mm -hmm. left, and Rain TV, the only TV station left. All of them have been shut down recently by Putin. Putin kept them going in mm -hmm. order to have the illusion that there was freedom of press in Russia. Now he's dispensed with that. Did Gorbachev, towards the end of his life, ever criticize Putin, and particularly the war in Ukraine? Uh, I don't think that there were any statements from Gorbachev about the war in Ukraine. Gorbachev was in a very bad uh, state of health the last year. So he was busy, he was constantly in hospital, and I don't think that he ever appeared and made any statements. But I would say that judging by his career and his, especially the career after uh, 1991, uh, you can imagine what, we, what he would have said about the war in Ukraine. You don't, you don't need words sometimes to know what exactly the person thinks about that. Right. Um, but he did support the annexation of Crimea in 2014. Well, yes, it was a very, it was a very confusing and controversial uh, event for many people in Russia. I'm pretty sure that a lot of the people who endorsed that back in 2014 regret about it now. Uh, it rather says. Well, it says a lot about the Russian society, certainly, the approval of uh, the annexation, but also it says something about uh, the, you know, kind of the changing conditions. Russia is changing fast. Uh, these days, not to the good, rather to, to the bad side of things. But yeah, I mean, Gorbachev made that statement, but... At the same time, he made a lot of different statements about different things, which were not, uh, uh, which were not kind of positive about the current regime. And for example, in 2011, Gorbachev criticized Putin for rigging the elections. Right. That was the, a very important milestone in the contemporary Russian history, and immediately the Kremlin responded to that criticism by saying that the political leader who failed to keep the country together has no right, and I quote, has no right to
to criticize the person, the political leader who saves the country on a daily basis. Right. And again, I'm speaking with Ilya Yablokov, who is a lecturer in journalism and digital media at the University of Sheffield in the United Kingdom, whose research interests include disinformation, conspiracy theories, international broadcasting, and political communications, as well as journalistic practices of self-censorship in the post-socialist countries. And he's also the author of Fortress Russia, Conspiracy Theories in the Post-Soviet World, and co-author of Russia Today and Conspiracy Theories, People, Power, politics on RT. Now, on Russian state TV, just recently, in the funeral for Dasha Dugina, who was assassinated, possibly instead of her father, although she was more prominent in many ways, on certainly on state TV than her father was, they held this, the funeral in the main studios of Russian state TV. Dugin spoke saying his daughter's first words as a baby were Russia and empire, mm-hmm. and that she died for the Russian people. And there's all calls for vengeance against the Ukrainians who are being blamed for it. Uh, lots of real genocidal hyperbole coming from these talking heads on Russian television. Mm-hmm. So does Putin have the tiger by the tail in terms of Russian nationalism? Is he orchestrating it? Or is it on its own? Because what what they're saying on Russian TV, the nationalists, is that well, let's finish the job in Ukraine. We're fighting the war with one hand tied behind our back. Similar right-wingers in this country during the Vietnam War said the same uh-huh. thing. Uh-huh. So what's your opinion? Does Putin control the narrative or is the narrative controlled by the nationalists? Uh, well... I, w- I, w- I would suggest a, a completely alternative look at this. Uh, I wouldn't focus on the narrative. Narratives are produced by people, right? Uh, and I would say that Russian nationalism is a social phenomenon. And one person or even a bunch of people, let's say in the Kremlin or in the White House or wherever, just cannot control that. Uh, Russian nationalism is a very diverse movement that has its, you know, people who hate the Kremlin. It has people who can, um, you know, kind of who can make an alliance with the Kremlin. There are nationalists who are very loyal to the Kremlin and in fact share the viewpoint on how Russia should function as an imperial state, as a national state. Uh, So there are kind of several kinds of nationalists. That's what I'm trying to say. People on the Russian TV who are given the stage on the major mainstream programs are most probably uh, a part of the third group, those imperialists, the so-called statists, people who praise, cherish, and put on the top the priorities of the state with a capital S. Now, when Putin tries to deal with nationalists, and he's been trying to deal with them throughout the 22 years in the Kremlin, it was um, it was basically the relationship between uh, which included hatred towards some of the radical groups 
Kremlin's hatred towards nationalists, but also the attempts to tame some of the nationalists, make them uh, loyal, make them mm, kind of part of the state ideology. So Dugin and the likes represents a kind of a, a particular type of Russian nationalists that will always go with the state. And they will never be in the radical opposition to the state because they are too afraid of this fight. And the whole biography of Alexander Dugin, and not to mention his daughter, it's an attempt to find a way to be close to the state, to be close to those people who actually are decision makers. Russian nationalists have never been decision makers in the Russian political system starting from 1991, right? So Putin at this moment uh, represents a particular type, a category of Russian nationalists that not that are not pushing for the ethnic type of Russian nationalists, let's say like the Nazis did, right? Russians uber alles. They say it's the Russian state, a multinational Russian state, that is the priority for the population and is the threat to multinational empires like the United States, right? So when we look at Dugin, his views are very similar. He also shares this statist ideology of Russian nationalism that pushes the borders of this state, the borders of the empire, further and further, further. So on the TV these days, we see lots of these pro-governmental, like pro-state uh, nationalist uh, statements. But we always forget that there is a different category of nationalists, ethnic nationalists, neo-Nazis, radical far-right, that is not necessarily France or dreams of being in the alliance with the Kremlin. They'd rather destroy the Kremlin. And these nationalists are a very dangerous group for the Kremlin because they don't need the state to be efficient. So when you said earlier, though, that Russia has changed over the last few decades under Putin, and change for the worst. In other words, do you think the state is getting more dangerous? I mean, it's militarily bogged down in Ukraine. It's hard to see Russia taking over the world, or, you know, Ruskimir and all this uh -huh. ridiculous posturing that's been going on from the nationalists. That doesn't, that doesn't seem realistic. But when you say it's changing for the worst, what do you mean? Well, what I mean is that a lot of the negative trends related to, first of all, related to the issue of identity uh, are turning into mainstream. 
So first, propaganda. Uh, this kind of Russian states uber alles, let's put it that way. Uh, it's pushing the trends in the regions to the margins, meaning that if there is a movement to get more rights in Russian regions, Moscow will do anything to punish it. And it's not just the movement in ethnic regions. It might be just the movement that, for example, calls for free elections of governors who are now elected, but really they are appointed by the Kremlin. Uh, that's one thing. So a very dramatic and disbalanced relationship between Moscow and regions. Second, what we see the identity politics with regard to, let's say, LGBT, with regard to women, with regard to different ethnic groups, uh, a lot of the chauvinistic and far-right concepts are taking the stage and being endorsed by the first and second rank politicians in the media, in the state loyal media. They, even if they say it in the performative way, do you know what I mean, right? They might, they might not mean that, but what when they say these things, like, like recently, the head of the Human Rights Council, uh, Valery Fadev, said that the children of the labor migrants from Central Asian republics who do not speak Russian language cannot study in the same primary secondary schools with the Russian kids. Imagine something like that in the United States. I cannot imagine that. But this is said by the person who in theory must defend the rights of the people who came to Russia to work, to pay taxes, and whose kids are supposed to get good education and in theory in future become Russian citizens. So these categories of population are ostracized, right? And not to mention uh, the constant battle and fear to, well, to look for enemies within the Russian state. Lots of the criminal cases against human rights activists, against political activists, against organizations, that is the trend that surfaced when Putin came to power in 2012. So the last decades is the gradual descent into the harsh authoritarianism in which the regime legitimizes its existence by punishing various communities and social groups within the country for political reasons and for the reason of protecting the regime. These are the trends that are destroying Russia. Well, Ilya Gablokov, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you.
And again, I've been speaking with Ilya Yablokov, who's a lecturer in journalism and digital media at the University of Sheffield in the UK, whose research interests include disinformation, conspiracy theories, international broadcasting and political communication, as well as journalistic practices of self-censorship in the post-socialist countries. He is the author of Fortress Russia, Conspiracy Theories in the Post-Soviet World, and co-author of Russia Today and Conspiracy Theories, People, Power, Politics on RT. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of what kind of internal battles are going on within the Russian security services between those who support the nationalists and those who want to turn down the Belicost and genocidal rhetoric of the nationalist war hawks dominating state TV. Я инженер на сотни рублей и больше я не получу. Мне 25 и я до сих пор не знаю, чего хочу. И мне кажется, нет никаких оснований гордиться своей судьбой. Но если бы я мог выбирать себя, я снова бы стал собой. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Gorham, who's a professor of Russian studies at the University of Florida and the author of two award-winning books on language, culture, and politics, after Newspeak, Language, Culture, and Politics in Russia, from Gorbachev to Putin, and Speaking in Soviet Tongues, Language, Culture, and Politics of Voice in Revolutionary Russia. In addition to the two co-edited volumes, Digital Russia, the Language, Culture, and Politics of New Media Communications, and the Culture and Politics of Verbal Prohibition in Putin's Russia. He's recently published articles devoted to the political and rhetorical impact of trolls, hackers, blogging bureaucrats, tweeting presidents, dictators on Instagram, Alexei Navalny on YouTube, and the Putin administration's recent efforts to enlist all legislative, technological, and rhetorical means possible to establish a sovereign internet independent of the World Wide Web. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Gorham. Glad to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, with the death of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, of course, prior to his death, uh, he was one of the founders of the only independent newspaper left in Russia, Navaya Gazeta, along with Rain TV. Uh, it was closed down, and the only independent radio station, Echo Moscow, it was closed down as well by Putin. So Putin essentially stifled Gorbachev's voice there at the end, and apparently Gorbachev privately was outraged by the war in Ukraine, but was not well enough to even make a statement about it. So what do you make of the of the condolences expressed today by Putin and Peskov? Well, I think they... Um, uh uh, find themselves in a difficult position. Uh, clearly, Gorbachev is uh, as revered as he is outside of Russia, in the West at least. Uh, he has uh, got a very complicated uh, history and profile within Russia. Uh, at the same time, he was you know, a distinguished national leader, and so they somehow have to um, pay tribute to that. But I, I don't think uh, we're going to hear... Uh, long and glowing reviews about him from uh, from anyone in the political uh, elite at this point, other than those uh, perhaps on the oppositional left. So tell us about the opposition left, uh, because in the elections, which of course are f- 
totally fraudulent. The communists still come in second. United Russia, Putin's party, of course, rigs the whole deal, so you don't really know exactly what mm-hmm. support it has. But And Navalny refers to it as the party of thieves and swindlers. Gorbachev himself criticised the Putin regime, I think, around 2011 as being a regime of similarly, you know, thieves and swindlers, essentially, or crooks and, and embezzlers. So what is the political opposition in Russia today? Well, um, as far as uh, their appreciation of uh, Gorbachev, since he's sort of still in our minds, uh, I think that the uh, legacy, his, his biggest legacy is basically um, freedom of speech and freedom of the press, opening things up in that regard with his uh, glasnost policies. And then uh, we can't forget the sort of liberation of uh, uh, organized religion of all faiths in the, in the late Soviet period as well. Com- Soviet communism, of course, was uh, built on the idea of atheism and uh, even the Russian Orthodox Church had a difficult time, and so uh, he is uh, still should be remembered as the as the man who made it possible to um, uh, express one's faith and practice one's faith freely. Uh, as far as the current state of the liberal opposition, uh, it's uh, obviously it's a in a in a in a, a difficult position. A good number of uh, folks have uh, have left the Russian Federation. Those that have uh, remained are finding it increasingly difficult to express themselves openly. Just uh, last week, we had the arrest of the former mayor of uh, a notoriously liberal city of uh, Yekaterinburg, a guy named uh, Evgenia Roisman, who's uh, wouldn't say he's a lefty liberal of the Boris Nemtsov type, but certainly an independent-minded uh, politician who's more than willing to speak his mind and has been speaking very critically about the war in Ukraine. He, like some others, have uh, insisted that, you know, and that their place is in Russia and they uh, have remained there. And now, um, you know, he's he's been released from custody, but he's still uh, he's still under pressure to uh, either leave or or keep quiet. So uh, we're seeing um, increasing repressive uh, regime and I think the uh, things like the recent uh, assassination of the daughter of uh, Alexander Dugan, uh, sort of a nationalist philosopher who herself was a a talking head on state-run television, that kind of allows the state even further reason to uh, get tough with its own own citizenry. So, Michael Gorham, when you mentioned Dugin and the assassination of Dasha Dugina, his daughter, who was actually more prominent than he in being a, one of the talking heads, most of the talking heads on Russian TV, which is what you follow and study, they're ultra-nationalists and war hawks, and they're making the case that Putin should take the gloves off, that he's fighting the war in Ukraine with one hand tied behind his back, which is an echo of what a lot of right-wingers in in this country said during the Vietnam War. So is Putin riding a tiger in terms of the Russian nationalism? Is that because the war is not going well for him? Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering whether that's a real problem for him. 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I, I don't think in this case uh, they're getting their talking points from uh, the, the press secretary of the Kremlin. I think uh, they're pretty much expressing their own positions, their own frustrations, uh, certain folks more than more than others. And um, it benefits Putin to the extent that he is able to uh, harness this in the name of, you know, invoking uh, the need to uh, be more patriotic and more supportive of uh, of Mother Russia, but uh, the flip side is it uh, it can it can get out of control pretty quickly uh, as well. So you don't you don't see this sort of heated rhetoric coming out of the Kremlin that you see coming out of the mouths of the of the the talk show hosts on on mainstream uh, television, and uh, of course they're. They're probably a little uh, concerned that, <laughs> by the fact that the woman who was uh, was uh, was uh, blown up in the car is uh, basically from their very own profession, and uh, I think they know very well that uh, you know it may not be a, a job by the Ukrainian security agencies, but rather an, an inside job. And if that's the case, we have a uh, we have um, different factions within the security agencies going after each other. And uh, it's a kind of a reminder to this this crew, the very propagandists who are, who are uh, you know, spewing uh, their filth on uh, late night television, that uh, the war has come home and that there's, it is, they are not above it. So that leads you to speculate and there has been a lot of speculation about this being a false flag operation and of course putin uh you know blew up a bunch of apartment buildings in september of 1999 just after he left as head of the fsb uh before he became president killed a lot of russian hundreds of russians actually innocent russian civilians in order to burnish his credentials and prosecute the war in chechnya so he's quite capable of just anything we know that but what would the purpose be if there's an intramural fight among the Siloviki, the the security people? What would be the the lines? On the one side, you've got the nationalists uh, represented by the national security advisor Nikolai Petrushev. But who are the other people that might be behind this assassination? Well, it's um, they're they're uh, complicated alliances. You have the um, um, Sort of the alliances within the various different security agencies who have always been competitive with one another, but uh, here it might be a case of um, uh, certain certain folks who, in fact, might be more aligned with the military, where they tend to be a little more conservative about their um, their use of military force in Ukraine. From from what I hear, it's. Uh, some of the generals are the ones who are saying, "No, we can't. We can't do this, and we need to dial this back." And so it could be a, could be an effort for them to kind of send a message as well. But uh, you know, it's it's difficult to say with all the various uh, factions going on. The odd thing is that Dugan, even Dugan, if if he was the intended target, is a pretty marginal figure in. Uh, in the you know rush among the russian elite people in the west like to point to him as um, 
you know, the source of uh, Putin's ideology. But, he, you know, Putin's pretty, pretty selective or, or um, you know, he, he, he picks and chooses whoever is, is giving the, uh, the lines that are convenient to him. And Dugan's pretty marginal within Russian, r- Russian uh, elite society. So uh, it's, it's hard to, so. it's hard to see why somebody would want to bother with him anyway. Right, he was. He certainly was intelligent, and and his his tortured kind of rambling speeches and weird philosophies. And his daughter was much was one of the hawkish talking heads. She may well have been the target, not him. But still, true. Um, it's all very murky, and you never get to the bottom of these things. That's the nature of a security state, uh, which is what Russia has become. So, just in the last couple of minutes, right. uh, Michael, do you? think that if the Ukrainians, are, they can't win the war, but if they hold the Russians and the Russians finally give up and hold on to what they've got, what do you think the backlash is going to be? Will this be an opening for more democracy or an opening for more nationalism? Uh, within Russia. Mm-hmm. Within Russia, of course. Well, um, it's hard to imagine a scenario where uh, the war stops with Russia occupying parts of Ukraine. Um, there may be ceasefires, but uh, I can't imagine Ukraine or those other countries supporting Ukraine to to uh, freeze the situation at this point. That's been tried before. That was tried in 2014. And um, the lesson is uh, it it provides Putin time to uh, to regroup. So I'm not sure I'm not sure what the uh, what the stopping point is, but I'm, I'm my fear is that this this war is going to be going on for a a, a good long time. Uh, the question is whether uh, you know whether that changes the climate in Russia, and and there I I tend to believe it's not going to change until Putin is gone, and then the question there is whether Putinism continues after Putin, and I can. I can see where there are uh, um, some years of continuation if certain people assume power, but uh, eventually, I, I, I don't think uh, I don't think there's a whole lot of hope for this system, so, if you can call it that, that he has put into place. Well, in many ways, this is parallel, isn't there? You're there in the state of Florida. Trumpism will go on after Trump with the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, right? Uh, yes, uh, now you're taking me outside of my um, area of expertise, <laughs> but um, I would wager to say that just like uh, Putin's successor will not have the um, the bona fides that uh, Putin himself has, um, I can't imagine a successor to Trump pulling off uh, Trump the way Trump did. Right. Uh, well, I thank you so much for joining us here today, Michael. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Gorham, who's a professor of Russian studies at the University of Florida and the author of two award-winning books on language, culture, and politics, after Newspeak, Language, Culture, and Politics in Russia from Gorbachev to Putin, and Speaking in Soviet Tongues, Language, Culture, and the Politics of Voice and Revolutionary Russia. And he's recently published articles devoted to the political and rhetorical impact of trolls, hackers, blogging, bureaucrats, tweeting presidents, dictators on Instagram, Alexei Navalny on YouTube, and 
the Putin administration's recent efforts to enlist all legislative, technological and rhetorical means possible to establish a sovereign internet independent of the World Wide Web. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.